When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. When we are feeling lonely, it causes these psychological distortions of perception. It makes us evaluate the relationships we have as less valuable, and it makes us be- truly believe that the people who care about us most don't care enough. When you're feeling really isolated and lonely, it just feels like no one cares, and then it's really hard to fathom that people do. It's a true distortion. So you really are hesitant to reach out because if why hasn't that friend called me in weeks? If I they must not care, so why would I reach out to them? I'll just get rejected again. When the reality is, but yes, but you haven't called them in weeks either. And perhaps if you did, they'll be like, oh my God, I've missed you so much. How are you? You don't find out because you don't call. Hi, I'm Francesca Spector, and you're listening to Alonement, the podcast that broadens the conversation around alone time. Each episode, I ask my guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. At the heart of every episode is one central question. What turns solitude into a good or bad experience? Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. So I wanted to whet your appetite for this episode with what I think are some pretty interesting icebreaker questions. What is emotional first aid? What does a loneliness expert actually do? And finally, what does alonement look like for a clinical psychologist? These are just some of the topics that I discuss with this week's guest, clinical psychologist and author Guy Winch. I first came across Guy back in 2014 after watching his viral TED talk, Why We All Need to Practice Emotional First Aid, which, with 11 million views, is one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. Guy is the author of several books, including the best-selling How to Fix a Broken Heart. When he's not working with patients, writing books, or speaking to auditoriums, Guy is also a loneliness expert, consulting on global campaigns for the likes of Lipton Tea. The thing that you wouldn't know about Guy, however, from looking at his academic and professional credentials, is that he is also an identical twin. Before anything else, that's what we kick off the episode talking about. Hello, 
Guy Wench, welcome to the Alonement podcast. It's so good to have you on. And it's such a pleasure to be with you. I'm so excited to speak to you today for so many reasons. I know that you do so much work around loneliness and, you know, of course, you are such an amazing pioneer in the, you know, emotional health space. But just to start with, I I know from reading your website and a lot of things you've spoken about in the past, I know that you're an identical twin. In terms of your own relationship with spending time alone, how was that growing up? Were you quite inseparable growing up? Well, in the womb, we were very inseparable for sure. (laughs) And... (laughs) Um, here's what happened. I'm actually this, nobody asked me that. So I'll tell you the, the story that most people don't know. For some reason, I don't know what it was. Uh, when we were very young, the teachers decided that it would be fine if we were in the same classroom Mm. and we were in the same classroom all through, um, all, all of school until university. And the teachers couldn't tell the difference between us. We got up to a lot of no good. In other words, all our friends were the same friends. And so in terms of being inseparable, you know, twins often have a very close relationship to begin with. But then when you put them in the same class, so all their friends and all their social circle and all their study schedules are the same, they're going to be really inseparable. <laughs> so, yeah, we're very close. How how was that? Do you, do you think that that was a positive thing? Or do you think, do you agree with the general policy of separating twins? I agree with the general policy. I mean, there were, it's always positives and negatives to everything. And the positives there for us was when you are an identical twin and you walk into a classroom, you don't have to prove yourself socially. You're immediately interesting at any age, right? And so you're immediately noticeable. You don't, you know, you don't, you, You don't have to get attention. You get it naturally because you're an identical twin. The downside is that then when you are no longer in the same classroom and, you know, you're 17, 18 years old and you start life. um, I remember there was a time where I would like I would walk into social events by myself and be like, why is it so difficult to get attention from people? Because it didn't occur to me that most of the attention I was getting was for being a twin. And then you really have to do things like develop a personality. And so, you know, there are some downsides because then it puts some challenges before you later on. In that context, um, and, you know, also in a more broad way, when I, when I say the word alone to you, and, you know, feel free to answer this as an individual or just, you know, in your professional capacity, what do you think of when I say the word alone? Alone to me literally means um, uh, the physicality of it. Uh, just you, you happen to be by yourself um physically just in the real sense of the word that's what alone means to me now you can be alone in a crowd in the sense that you know i i live in new york city i'm in a crowd most of the time whenever i leave my house but i often leave it by myself so then i'm alone in it but but i am i'm by myself whether among other people who i don't know or, so that's what alone means to me it's just about the physicality of of um, being by yourself and it's interesting so it doesn't really have any Alone is something people often load connotations on to, and especially in the context of mental health, people say you are not alone. So it's interesting to me that you do see that still in quite an objective way. Within your work, I wanted to look at the idea of alone as almost within the context of self-reliance and self-soothing, because you know what's interesting to me is that in, in your book, Emotional First Aid, What's what's interesting is you talk about first aid as something that is self-administered. And 
often you know when we talk about first aid it can be you know from a you know from a medical perspective it can be something we do to another person or we do to ourselves so how does aloneness come into that that sort of looking after oneself and that sort of acknowledging that you are alone you know emotionally or you you have that responsibility to look after your own emotional health yeah well I would think of it then in the sense of self-sufficiency um and specifically in the context in which I wrote it my feeling was you know everyone used to say in graduate school like everyone should go to therapy a absolutely not everyone should not go to therapy and we couldn't possibly have everyone go to therapy. We don't have enough therapists and people don't have enough money and it's difficult and it's complicated. It's just not a practical thing. So my feeling was when you cut your finger or when you have a sprain or something, you don't run to the doctor right away. You have a little first aid kit at home. You put your bandage on, you put the ice back on, you put the ointment on, you take the you know, the, the, the pill for the headache, you, the, you know what to do before you need to go and rely on someone else, whether it's with, uh, you know, a loved one, a friend, a doctor, you, you know, there's self-sufficiency, you first, you know, you triage yourself first, but then it occurred to me that in the psychological, emotional space, there wasn't a kit like that, people didn't have that, that information, that knowledge, and certainly not the techniques that they could use in that sense. And so the idea is not we must be alone or survive alone, therefore let's learn to tend to our own wounds. That's when the wounds are minor, at least at first, that's the first thing we need to do. Adults don't run to their partner and say, look, I have a cut in my finger. They just see you with a bandage later on, they go, what happened? Oh, cut my finger. Because you, you take care of it yourself. And it's the same kind of thinking with these kinds of minor and common emotional wounds. Just, just be aware and take care of it yourself first. Hmm. Yeah. Um, although, how to tell the difference? How, you know, this is something I talk about with my friends quite a lot. You know, how to make that distinction when you could do with outside help and when you should, when it's, you know, when it's perhaps simpler to deal with something alone. Well, it's a really good question. And and for that reason, I end every chapter in the book, Emotional First Aid specifically, with when to see a mental health professional. Here's, right, if you try this and this and this, or if this is what's going on, or if this is how you're feeling, or if this is unrelenting, that's when you go and you see someone. Now, the problem is our sophistication psychologically is way behind where it is physically, because most people, most adults, if you get a cut, you can tell whether a bandage will do, whether you might do, I might need a stitch or just quickly hail a cab by going to the ER. You kind of know the differences between the depth of the cut and the, how much it's bleeding. We don't have that gauge well when it comes to our psychology and our emotions. So I do try and lay out some parameters at the end for people just to know this is when you might go and see someone. Um, but I think the first round has to be self-care, has to be what can you do? Hmm. Yeah. And... Do you think almost we, because we can, the thing is because we can reach out to people much easier these days, obviously we're, you know, we're recording this during the coronavirus pandemic so that there are restrictions to how much you you can socialize these days, but still in, you know, in the digital space, you can reach out to someone, you can send someone a WhatsApp message, you can almost be in contact with people so much more you know and you can you know you can post something on social media there there are many different ways to sort of reach out to people so do you think we're almost losing a capacity for self-reliance sometimes because we can quite easily access other people to deal with our emotions 
Well, the things I talk about in the book, the techniques I'm offering, you know, in the book, although there's sometimes where it's about getting social support, they're actual techniques, actual exercises that you do either in a writing form or mentally or in other kinds of ways to, you know, soothe a certain emotional pain or to soothe a certain wound. And these exercises are ones that are not going to be effective if you just call a friend. I mean, social support is important and actually does a lot. And getting your feelings validated is a very, very useful thing. Um, it's it's not enough in some of these cases. So just for example, if there's there's a chapter on, chapter on self-esteem, so I go through very specific writing exercises you need to do to revive your self-esteem after you might feel, after you've been through a rejection, say, or even if a failure. Um, it's it's a writing exercise that you have to do that, that that's thoughtful and that makes you process things in a certain way. Talking to a friend and getting support of, oh, poor you. And, you know, it's it's nice, but it's not going to have that, impact Hmm. but some people might say that that's some some people might say it's it's damaging to suggest that people should deal with things by themselves I feel like there's almost a narrative in mental health spaces that you know it's all about oh you are not alone you know reach out you can talk to someone and what I like about what you say is you you do talk about that self-reliance well I talk about both they're not mutually exclusive by no means am I implying that you shouldn't reach out I'm saying that reaching out will provide you with emotional validation and social support. Maybe if a friend is really wise and useful, they might give you a moment of insight or something. Um, That's good. That takes care of some things. But there are other things you can do that will take care of other things and maybe even more deeper things that you can do for yourself as well. So I'm not suggesting, no, no, you shouldn't reach out. I'm suggesting you should do both. You should get emotional support, but but also apply certain techniques and understand what's going on with you in a way that maybe a friend won't be able to point out. You know what I'm thinking about, just if, if I may for a minute, people often say to me um, or tell me, patients sometimes will tell me and people will say to me like, yeah, I have this friend, they don't believe in therapy. They think you can just talk to a friend. What's the difference between talking to a friend and talking to a therapist? And uh, you know, in the past uh, six months, we've started this this podcast that I do called Dear Therapists, which within it, um, I have a co-host. And the way it works is we uh, people write letters for advice. Uh, one of us reads a letter to the other person. We do a little mini case consultation. There's two therapists on it. Then we bring the person in and we have a session. Now, it's not a therapy session officially, but it's a session. And in that session, we go at it really strongly and very sharply in terms of confronting the person with their issues, having them take responsibility. And then at the end, we give them very practical advice that they need to do within a week and then report back so we know how it all turned out. The thing there is that when people listen to that, it will be extraordinarily clear to them what the difference is between therapy and friends listening to you and saying, oh, that sucks. Um, because therapy is a much more, is a much deeper, much more difficult emotionally. It's more, it, it's challenging to be in therapy if you're in good therapy, because it, it forces you to look at the stuff you don't want to look at, the stuff you typically don't. So, you know, you can get nice things from a friend, but there's only so much you can get from a friend. And between the friend and the therapist is the emotional first aid that you can do for yourself. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting job doing therapy because I suppose in many many other professions the interest is to you know is to bring the client the customer back whereas of course with what you're trying to do is to empower people to go and often do things alone to effectively you know 
be able to empower themselves not to have to come back effectively and to be able to go off and, and be self-sufficient, self-soothing. One of the things that a lot of my patients are most surprised about is that when they say to me, um, I think I might want to take a break, my response is always like, great. <laughs> and often I'm the one saying it first. Because my idea is that it, I don't have a Freudian notion of therapy where, you know, come see me for 10 years and then off you go, you're cured. A, they never were after 10 years because I don't know what they were doing for 10 years. But B, um, you know, life is a very live uh, influx kind of situation. So you come, we'll work on the issue is that you want to work on. You feel that you're in a better place about it. Off you go. When other things come up or that issue revisits, come again, we'll work again. So there are people that I've seen for decades, but I haven't seen them for decades. I saw them for a couple of years there, and then I saw them for a month there. And once in a while, they'll come back for a booster shot, as it were. Um, and that's a much better model for me because it's an as-needed model. And I always say to my patients, you determine how often you need to come, not me. You know you're distressed, not me. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to know how that works, because I think that's one, you know, that's one way people might be suspicious of therapists if, you know, someone does go for 10 years, whereas, as you say, it's a sort of, you know, it's a going off and, you know, and maybe coming back for a booster shot if circumstances of life change, but ultimately you want to empower people to be able to, yeah, to be able to lead the sessions. And, you know, and also, you know, that it's funny, that conversation, it's, it's not an awkward conversation about having to leave, as you say, that's something that you would bring up yourself. Do you think that there's ever a danger, though? Do you think that perhaps people almost get used to coming and having therapy and might find that quite hard to leave just because they've learned quite naturally to lean on someone? Um, well, again, it, there are very many styles of therapy, right? So there actually are styles of therapy that have the 10-year model in the sense of it's about exploring your unconscious and and and, and kind of digging and excavating from childhood. And, and you can do that for, indeed for 10 years. I don't know necessarily to what end, but you can. Um, and, and so, and there's some therapies which are very supportive therapies. You come and you'll get a lot of hand-holding and a lot of, oh my goodness, that's terrible. Um, it depends on the therapist. It depends on the style of therapy. I'm admittedly um, slightly impatient person. So um, in the sense that if someone's coming to me, I want to have a clear idea in my head what they're trying to work on. It might be a different, slightly idea of what they think they're working on, right? Because I might have a, a take on it professionally that's a little bit different that I don't need to disclose that I think is different, or sometimes I will. Um, but I know what I'm working on. They know what they think they're working on. Um, and to the extent that if they're just coming in, I don't have a sense of friction of tension then we're not really working at that point right because it should be about confronting things it should be about dealing with things if it's not then what are we doing and that's when i'm when i get that kind of lack of tension kind of uh, then i will say things like let's refocus right now what, what do you think the issues are that you want to really focus on right now or do you feel because we started with this this seems to be a little better for you um, are there other things or maybe we should take a break in other words so I will use the fact that I'm not feeling that real work vibe which people who've been in therapy will be familiar with it you know when you're really working this is not if I'm not feeling it I will bring it up and say maybe you know we take a break right now or maybe there are other things we're not looking at which we should look at and then it's a discussion it's conversation hmm. 
one of the other things that interests me about your work, because you do so many different things, but you know, you're also, you're a loneliness expert as well for, you know, for Lipton Tea, you're working alongside them um, as their loneliness expert. Mm-hmm. What, what does that part of your work consist of? What, what do you, what does one do as a loneliness expert? Well, in this case, I mean, Lipton um, is part of Unilever right now, um, and they and every company under Unilever has a purpose that they, you know, have as an umbrella kind of issue that they that they're dedicated towards. And with Lipton, it's connection, it's emotional connection, and disconnection. So that's that's where loneliness comes in, and it, it's a good synergy for their brand because the idea of, you know, have a cup of tea with someone. And that's when you usually kind of let your hair down and let your guard down and 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 connect emotionally with another person. So it actually works well with their brands, but they wanted to be very serious about what can we do about this? They were concerned about hidden loneliness because they were looking at all the studies that are coming in and looking at what age group is the most lonely. And it's not the elderly. It's the 18 to 24-year-olds right now, the 24 to 32 year olds. It's the younger generation who are feeling way more lonely and disconnected than our stereotype of the 80 year old living alone. And they are disconnected because there's something about having a thousand people you're connected to on social media, yet feeling like none of them really get you or none of them really care. They can feel profoundly isolated. So they were very concerned about that and they wanted, and so we we did some focus groups, we did some studies and um, they're starting a campaign or they were going to, I mean, this is again, COVID kind of delayed some of this stuff that Lipton's doing, but, but the campaigns, and we already launched one in, in, in Turkey right before COVID in which they have all these, um, you know, uh, messaging and these platforms to help people connect, to, to give them tools to connect better. It's a lovely, lovely campaign. And the reason I agreed to be their advisor on it is because they were really serious about trying to have an impact. This wasn't a marketing ploy. This was an impact ploy. And they put a lot of resources behind it and they were super serious about it. And um, it warmed my heart that they were because I thought it was actually really, really important. Um, so that's what kind of brought us together. And, and, and when I would say, no, this is how this has to be and this is how that has to be, they would listen. They'd be like, okay, let's do that because we want impact. Mm. And oh, that's going to be more expensive. Fine, let's do it. We want the impact. So I was very chuffed working with them I just felt that they they did a they were very sincere in their efforts and still are and that aspect of the research that you quoted that you know is the actually the younger generation that are the loneliest Mm -hmm. and you say that you know that's to do with having those thousand people you're connected with on social media um you know that not being sort of sufficient connection for you do you think we've kind of almost gone wrong sometimes when we think about you know, social media as like an anti-loneliness tool? Do you think that we've, we're failing to realize that it is about that quality of connection? It's not about, you know, all the numbers of people we're connected with um, virtually. I, I do think that we tend to, or younger people tend to look at their amount of followers, say, and gauge their popularity in a way by it or their acceptance by it. Um, but it's very misleading because you're putting out content and people might be liking it. I've never experienced personally, I don't know if you have, but I've never experienced personally 
a post that I liked that made me feel warmer and closer to that person. It's an intellectual thing. I'm like, and even if something's someone's posting something very dramatic or personal, I'll kind of like it, but I'm not, I didn't talk to them about it myself. I didn't hear the tone in their voice. Or even if it was a video clip, it's like, it's shared with the world. It doesn't feel like a personal disclosure to me. So I don't feel specifically closer to them because I saw something they posted on social media. The point of social media, to my mind in that way, is it gives you an easy platform with which to reach out and then have a one-on-one, even if it's virtual or if it's over text, but then have a deeper discussion with the person to fully connect or to alert you that maybe that person that you care about is having some issue or distressed. So now you can actually call them or text them you know, privately and see how that's where it can be connective, but not the thing itself. The thing itself is a gateway. And if we use it as a gateway and then take action to follow up, then we can use it in a way that's connective, but it doesn't naturally do that, I think. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's so true. That thing about, you know, liking a post or, you know, seeing someone's liked your post, because it really, yeah, I, I often think how, almost how cheap, this connection is to me you know I can like someone's work success or whatever but you know it really doesn't take you know it doesn't take a second does it and it really um yeah it's there's something quite sad about it but 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 you can use it you know to do that for example if somebody writes something about their work success and you saw that and you cared about the person and you send them a message whether public or private I believe but it's oh my goodness I remember when you just started out and what your hopes and dreams were you must be so happy now and you must be so proud and I'm so glad for you if you post a comment like that that's connective um and and it is connective and they will feel it and you will feel it in the writing and they will feel it in the reading and it might actually galvanize other people to, oh, I should say something nice too. Um, and then and then that's good. But if it's just a like or a yay, you know, no. Yeah. So if you were, you know, and, and this is not beyond the realms of possibility because I can imagine you being asked to do this, but if you had to advise on social media policy to to make it seem like a less lonely place to be for these, you know, this lonely younger generation. Is that, would you remove the like button? Is that one of the things you would do? No, I've actually had these discussions. I did a Facebook Live with Facebook at the start of the pandemic. We were talking about loneliness and it was a Facebook Live. They don't do many actual, because Facebook Lives people do on their accounts, but this was with actual Facebook. And, and I was trying to make the point that what the research says is that social media can feel isolative and and can make you feel lonely if you use it very passively because it's a highly curated medium where people are putting their best face forward their image management so you know nobody puts the shitty vacation pictures up right it's all like look how beautiful it looks from my room except if you pan just a little to the left there's a dumpster there and there's a, <laughs> you know whatever but they don't show you that right and so you can look at everyone's life is so fabulous and great and mine sucks so and so it's misleading it's curated in that way but it's when you use it actively and the active use is not liking it's leaving that comment of oh my goodness i remember when you started out how wonderful for you i feel so excited that's an active engagement. To the extent that people use it to actively engage with others, they feel less lonely. But if you just use it to passively, um, you know, cruise other people, surf other people's profiles, then you're going to feel more lonely. And unfortunately, when we are feeling lonely, when we are feeling disconnected, when we are feeling ignored, um, we are much more likely to be in passive mode of just sitting there and in our misery, just flicking through and going, hey, everyone's life is so great, but mine. 
Yeah. You know, this is something I wanted to ask you about because uh, I was listening to your your TED talk in 2015, um, Why We All Need to Practice Emotional First Aid. And you tell that story about you and your twin brother um, mm-hmm. and how you used to call each other on your birthdays and how there was that that one year where you thought that he hadn't called you, you thought he'd forgotten. And so, you know, you sat there all day and waited and then it turned out you'd accidentally taken the phone off the hook. Um, back back when phones had hooks to be taken off. Yes, of course. Out, if people are unfamiliar <laughs> with that metaphor, like phones used to be, you have to have a receiver that was put on a cradle and if you take the receiver <laughs> off the cradle, you couldn't get a call. I should clarify. Yes. Oh, I think I feel like I should be leaving a link to an old fashioned landline in the show notes. Know, right? <laughs> just to clarify, just to clarify. Um, so yes. So um, it's funny. I wonder what the equivalent would be now. I suppose it would be putting your phone on airplane mode, which I yes. do quite a bit. Yes. Um, yes. So yeah, imagine a phone put on airplane mode. But anyway. Oh, really? Actually, you know yeah. what? No, the, the thing now is, oh, I let the battery run out. You know, that's the thing. Everyone's battery runs out and they couldn't get the call. Completely. So for any Gen Zers listening to this, that, that yes. this is the equivalent. <laughs> yes. Forget about the landline phone thing we described. That's just a figment of the past. But you see, you, you describe how this happened. But, you know, then the next day he asks you, why didn't you just call me? And, you know, you say to that, you know, loneliness makes us afraid to reach out. You know, why set yourself up for rejection and heartache when your heart is aching more than you can stand? And you know, that's so poignant and so it resonated so much, I think, with so many people. Of course, I mean, of course, you know, ten, tens of millions of views, I believe. So, so the thing about that that I was trying to highlight is that when we are feeling lonely, it causes these psychological distortions of perception. It makes us evaluate the relationships we have as less valuable, and it makes us truly believe that the people who care about us most don't care enough. This was my twin brother, the person, you know, is closest to in the world. And I somehow convinced myself because the phone wasn't ringing because I, again, had put it on the equivalent of airplane mode. (laughs) Um, I had somehow convinced myself that it's because I had left and I was in New York now that he was busy and he'd call me the next day and that would be fine. Ignoring the fact that, A, it's his birthday too, so Mm -hmm. really, um, and uh, B, uh, I really should have had no doubt whatsoever about how much he cared about me. But when you're feeling really isolated and lonely, it just feels like no one cares. And then it's really hard to fathom that people do. It's a true distortion. So you really are hesitant to reach out because if, why hasn't that friend called me in weeks? If I, They must not care. So why would I reach out to them? I'll just get rejected again. When the reality is, but yes, but you haven't called them in weeks either. And perhaps if you did, they'll be like, oh my God, I've missed you so much. How are you? But yeah. you don't find out because you don't call. That's so true. And, you know, I think it's so interesting what you said about, you know, you, you know, you kind of, you weren't thinking it was your brother's birthday as well. And, you know, to extend that out, yeah, you kind of almost forget that everyone else has their own emotional inner life. Right. Right. And just an outer life. Right. I mean, in other words, people always interpret the, like some people said to me, like, it was so insulting that they didn't like my posts because I've liked all their posts. And like, and yet, it's very likely the next time you see them, they'll refer to it and be like, oh, it looked like you had such a great trip. Well, why didn't they like it? Because it's possibly they were scrolling in the toilet and they didn't want to touch <laughs> the phone. It's possible that their hands were full of one baby and a shopping bag and they just didn't have a free thumb as they were like, you know, quickly looking to do it. But, you know, they are not 
you know, they, they noted it and they will say it to you. You don't have to fill in the missing information with the worst case scenarios. But when we're feeling bad in any way, especially lonely, that is how we fill in the missing gaps with the worst case scenarios, with the worst assumptions. Yeah, it's true. And I, I suppose that's why loneliness is so destructive because it makes you feel alone in, you know, we were talking about the different connotations of alone. It, it makes you feel alone in a very negative sense. You are the only person in the world. You are the only person having those feelings. And it also is physically incredibly damaging, right? In other words, chronic loneliness, especially not, not the, the, the temporary stuff, but even the temporary stuff is not good. But when it's chronic loneliness, the risk uh, to our health and longevity, right, our lifespan, is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's how damaging it is to our long-term health and longevity. And so most people don't know that. And most people don't know that loneliness is as dangerous as cigarette smoking. Now, when you have a friend who's smoking a cigarette, you can say maybe once, smoking cigarettes, you can say maybe once, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't smoke, you know, but you can't really do that much about it. But when you have a friend who's lonely and you can tell then actually this is something we can crowdsource because you can reach out and you don't have to say, hey, you seem lonely. You, all you have to say is, hey, I miss you. Let's go have a drink. And the more casually you are about it, and if they're like, mm, I don't know, you'll be like, come on, I haven't seen you. Let's go have a drink. Let's, let's do a virtual coffee. Yeah. Um, let's share a cup of tea, whatever it is. Um, and, and then you can connect and then you can actually do something to help that person, which you can't do if they're smoking. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, We are able to help each other with our emotional health so much more. Um, I find, you know, I find this interesting because, you know, a whole part of your messaging, um, you use medical terms for emotional health, which, you know, I think is so powerful how you say emotional first aid or, you know, psychological medicine cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in, in this case, you know, you, I guess it's talking about, you know, the emotional and physical aren't disconnected, are they? They, it, you know, it does, it, you know, emotional health can affect your lifespan. Mm -hmm. There's even a study that people did where they looked at people's, um, I think, kindergarten, I don't know what you call that, uh, in like, like literally first grade five-year-old uh, pictures, right? When you take all the five and six-year-olds and you have to like smile for the camera. And they counted the crow's feet uh, around the wrinkles, around people's five or six-year-old's eyes. And they wanted to see um, if, because that was a sign of more authentic smile, of more happiness, of more connection. And then they correlated that with lifespan years later. And they found that um, people who had more crow's feet around their eyes when they smiled at younger ages lived longer lives. Now, it's a correlation, right? So there might be a lot of intervening variables there. But the idea is that, you know, happiness or life satisfaction is kind of the better term for it because happiness is relative, but life satisfaction and connection to others where you feel connected, you feel a part of, are extraordinarily powerful for physical health, just as the opposite, the loneliness, feelings of disconnection, depression, are very damaging to physical health. So that, you know, it literally makes you sicker when you're not emotionally well. Uh, it makes you physically sicker. And, and and so, and vice versa, you, you, you know, but when, you know, the more positive and stronger you are and more resilient emotionally and more connected, the healthier you tend to be, all things being equal. So they're highly intertwined. We're, we're still unraveling that, obviously, in science, and we'll be probably for another hundred years. But, but we do know from many other kinds of studies, we know, for example, when you tend to brood and ruminate about things, if that becomes habitual, you're more at risk to develop um, 
coronary heart disease. You're more at risk to develop clinical depression. If you get a depression, it's going to likely to last longer just because of how you think about things. You're more likely to, um, you know, when you're lonely, you're more likely to go through a dementing process more rapidly. If you're going through one, that's not a natural part of aging, I should point out. But for those who do go through dementia or Alzheimer's, he couldn't say Alzheimer's. That's a little worrying. Um, so, so you know, when, when you're going through that, the more connected you are, the slower the progression is going to be. The more interactive you are socially, the slower the progression is going to be. That's very, very demonstrated in the research. So what's the connection between talking to people and dementia? Well, social connection activates a long, you know, all kinds of areas of your brain and keeps them active and keeps those connections in the neurons strong and thicker and keeps the neural networks flowing better. And so, yeah, that's the connection. The more you operate those muscles, the more you preserve them. And social connection operates a lot of brain muscles in that way. On the flip side, this totally opposite side of being alone, which is, you know, which is, I've actually invented a word for this myself, which is alonement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've spoken so much about the negative sides of being alone and, and loneliness. But my whole discovery a couple of years ago was that, well, loneliness is something that happens and, you know, does still happen to me today. I could also benefit psychologically from spending time alone. And, you know, that was, that's, effectively been you know what I've been working on the past couple of years exploring that and you know what the difference is between loneliness and positive solitude or or what I call alonement would you agree in you know through your research and through the people that you speak to would you agree that there can be positive benefits of spending time alone of course I think it's actually really important for people to spend some time alone and I think especially over COVID a lot of people are suffering because they don't get that if they happen to be in a household that's you know quite full and people are working from home and kids are doing remote learning and all of that they are craving some alone time i was at a conference last summer when we still had them um, i was at a conference and one of the people at the conference i knew had just had twins and i think she they were probably like around four months five months at that point so here she is at this conference for sure it's her first time away Right. And so she's been, you know, nursing these newborns for months. It's her first time away. She's actually away from home. Every time I looked at her, do you know what she was doing? She was sitting in a corner and reading. Now she knew everyone there. She wasn't interacting with them. <laughs> she just <laughs> needed some time by herself. So she didn't want to do it in her room, but, but she sat in the corner of these events and read a book and it was alone. That's what she was doing. She needed it desperately. So, yeah, it could be very, very important. That's lovely. Um, I mean, not so much that she got so so little alone time that that's what she felt she had to do. But, you know, I think it really, it, it is amazing how it can be such an instinct to people as well. It can be just, it can be something you crave, even though I don't think that's spoken about as much as, you know, craving social connection. Um, speak to mothers of newborns. They won't be that hesitant to tell you, oh, please just give me a few minutes by myself (laughs) you know like just take the baby please just give me time to sit and stare at the wall um yeah I mean there are certain situations in which people really really crave that yeah and it's funny I mean I actually I had I have another author on this series of the podcast called Nell Frizzell and she's she has a 
two-year-old son, I think now, or maybe he's just turned three. Anyway, she has a very young son and she was telling me that same morning, I think we recorded about nine or 10 a.m. And she'd already left while her baby was sleeping with her partner and she'd gone for a freezing cold swim in the river just to get that alonement time herself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know it's funny that you know where people will fit in that time it's funny though because you say you know you say to me you know, speak to speak to parents of newborns do you think that people perhaps don't discover it until maybe later life it's maybe something more associated with those stages of life i think the key word there is discover because I think that people have to um, learn in a way or discover, right? Let's use that word. They have to discover how to be alone. Have to discover how to occupy themselves, have time for their thoughts. You know, I always say to people like, you need to spend some time thinking about this, visualizing this, unpacking this. And I always emphasize, and that means you have to be by yourself when you do it. It's not something you can do with people. You kind of sitting comfortably, meditating, closing your eyes, visualizing a scenario, and then seeing what the emotional response to those visualizations are is a very alonement exercise, right? It's not something you can do among other people. It'll be disruptive. And and you some and, and people will say, I don't have a space to do that. And like yes, you do go to the toilet, sit in the toilet. I don't care. Just find, have a door you can close where you can be by yourself. And people are often, and by the way, I'm doing Zoom sessions, right, over COVID. Quite a few of them are in the toilet, not on my end. I actually have an office, <laughs> but um, on their end, because they're just the only place they could find to close a door and have some privacy. And when they do, there's a, a bit of a kind of a relief that you feel from them. I'm like, oh, it's the first time I just had a moment by myself to kind of get my own thoughts and feelings in order. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. In my in my upcoming book, Alonement, also called Alonement, uh, I have a whole chapter on uh, making space for alonement. And I start it by talking about the concept of a garden shed because I always remember my granddad when I was younger disappearing off to the shed at the end of the garden and that was I never realized but that was his sort of me space and you know as it is I think that uh, you know a lot of people I speak to are like well I'm sharing a one bed flat with my boyfriend or you know especially during the pandemic it's very very hard to get that space but as you say it doesn't necessarily need to be you know well it would be you know I think everyone's craving a home office at the moment if that's not a possibility then it can you know it can be I suppose even even a space outside of the home like a you know a walk in the park sort of thing or just you know just somewhere to be alone yeah but you know we have this concept now in the states I don't know what it's called maybe it's called the same thing in the UK but but it's the idea of the whole idea of the man cave um right is yeah supposedly it's you can bring friends over, but how often does that happen, really? It's just a place for you to go to be by yourself. And then the, and then after the man cave came about, the she shed came about. So that's the place where, you know, and I don't, one is not necessarily a cave or a shed, but it's a room, right? It's where, like, that's her room where she goes, where you don't interrupt. It's her space, decorated her way, made for her to feel comfortable, or that's his man cave where he has his things, where he can be by himself. Those things came about for alonement purposes, really. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny. I need to send you a copy of my book after this because <laughs> talk about all of that as well. And, you Excellent. know, the, the evolution. And I find it so funny as well. And, you know, one thing I say, it's so funny that we 
gendered these spaces you know I think you know the man cave came about in that self-help book you know men are from Mars women are from Venus it was used in that book in 1992 and then you know she shed followed on from that but why do we need to gender these spaces or even pretend we're doing anything in there surely like alone time is an end in itself or is it is a value in itself that can be done and can be that you know that can be enough to have space for Right. But I think the idea, I mean, the men are from Mars, women are from Venus, the John Gray book is really about the fact that, you know, people communicate, you know, genders communicate very differently. Obviously, this is very stereotypical and, and, and not doesn't necessarily describe any one person. But the idea of the man cave is not just that it's a place for the person to be alone, because there wouldn't have to be a man cave in that way, it would just be a room. The man cave means they can be in their natural state. And their natural state might be messy in their natural state, just stereotypically, right? It might be like, you know, they will have things there that, you know, a woman would come in and go like, ugh. Um, and, you know, and a she shed should be all feminine and fluffy and whatever. I don't know. I mean, these are the stereotypes. But, but the idea was not just to have a place to be alone, but to have a place to be alone and be authentic to your gender, because you couldn't possibly do that uh, in a room that was, you know, gender neutral. Yeah. And do you have a man cave? I, 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 I have to, <laughs> I do, I do. Um, it, it's, uh, and it's, it's not a dedicated room. It's an area, um, but it's, it's, it's where my shit is, you know, it's, and I don't, and I don't mean psychological stuff. I mean, the, the, just the, the objects, which I find dear and most people would find not necessary. <laughs> could you, could you give me an insight into, into what those are? Um, to, uh, you might find it's going to sound terrible. You might find references to Star Wars there in some <laughs> shape or form. I love that. I'm imagining this Star Wars sort of, um, you know, all, all the all the paraphernalia in this den. It, it's not. It's not. I'm not a fanboy in that sense. It's not decked out in that way. But there'll be a couple of you know objects that I found, you know, that I've received as gifts or that I especially like. So you know, stuff like that. And, and and what is what is your alonement? For me, um, it's walking. I when I'm writing, especially, um, and I am, you know, a little stuck about something. I need to figure something out, plot plot wise, or just something wise. Um, for me, walking is great thinking time. And I will. I like walking in general. I live in New York City, so that's a walking city to begin with especially in nature, I will take a walk um, in nature with a very clear purpose in mind of thinking something specific through. And it is the best thinking I do. Um, And I'll give another one, even though it's trite, but it's just ridiculously true. The shower. I've had so many amazing ideas in the shower. Um, And because it is, I don't know if it's the water or whatever it is, but it's there's something that just gets my brain fired up and I and I just have these ideas and I get excited and it's like very private and very um, just enriching. Just, you know, it, it, it's stimulating in that way that it just gets my mind going. And um, so I, those are two places where I, I really enjoy my alone time because I'm, I, I have great thinking or great processing or if there's something I'm upset about it allows me to really kind of figure it out and get clear about it so I figured out the spaces that I can do that in I think it's important for most people to do to figure that out where you do alonement best 
Do you think there's something about being in water? Because of course, you know, it's mm. the only place where tech is disabled. Another friend of mine tells me that her alonement is when she's swimming. Um, I love your swimming too. Yeah. Swimming as well. So mm. I don't know if you have the same problem as her then, because she says to me, I find it very hard because I have some of my best thoughts and then I can't write them down because I'm, I'm in water. What do you do? <laughs> Um, on a, on a walk, I'll find myself on the way back, often dictating into my, um, phone and, um, the shower comes to an end and you dash out and start taking notes. That's what you do. Guy, thank you so much. It's been such a joy to speak to you. It's been a pleasure. And I have to tell you, I'm really excited about the alonement book coming up and, and the idea, because I think it's a very important way to reclaim individual personal space without the negative connotation and that uh and 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 i think it's important to do especially in the area of a loneliness pandemic you can see somebody sitting alone in other words i don't know for example if that woman that i saw reading books at that at that event i don't know if anyone looked at her and said oh is she just being shy or whatever i looked at her and i caught her eye and i was almost laughing because it's terribly obvious what her need was <laughs> she she flew to another country to be able to sit in the corner and read quietly i just thought i just could i completely got it and i smiled at her and she smiled back she got that i got it it was very clear what she was doing like and so i'm, I'm hoping other people saw it that way but perhaps not and that's why it's kind of important to reclaim that people can understand that it's a replenishing and that there's certain kinds of processing and thinking that you really must do alone or, or with a therapist or but 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 really alone first perhaps even and and so it's important to to value that guy thank you so much that means so much from you Thank you so much for tuning in to the show. I really hope you enjoyed listening and that it's given you some valuable advice and inspiration for turning your alone time into alonement. If you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, then I'd be so grateful if you could leave a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the absolute best way to support independent podcasts like Alonement. Plus, it really helps other people discover the show. Until next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.